pick a lane. Make sure that you build your niche, build where you want to be, um, limit your, geogra- your geography. Don't uh, try and be everything to everybody. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Hey, I just wrapped an interview with Michael McCreary, an OG in our industry. We covered a bunch of territory in this interview from how he got into the business, what he's seeing changing, and the bedrock fundamentals that will never change in property management. I think you're going to like this one. Check it out. Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Moyla, and today I have Michael McCreary with me. Michael, thanks for coming on the show. It's so great to be here, Jordan. Michael, where did you come in from? I'm coming from Marietta, Georgia, which is 20 miles northwest of Atlanta. Fantastic. Michael, I'm excited to have you on and hear a little bit about your background. You are Mm -hmm. an industry figure. You've been in the game for a long time. If we just rewind the clock all the way back, Mm -hmm. how did you get your start in property management? Um, probably around 1965 when my grandfather came to, um, uh, my father and said, uh, we've got all this inventory. We see this opening with Lockheed ramping up all this production for property management. Will you start a property management division for the family real estate business? And my father said, well, of course. And so I kind of grew up in the business. I started taking emergency phone calls nights and weekends. I painted houses. I mowed grass. I planted mailboxes. I helped dad with evictions, all kinds of things all the way into my 20s. Well, this is extremely interesting. It's a rare treat. And I say that not simply out of nostalgia, Mm -hmm. but out of the unique vantage point. You've seen a lot change. You've Mm -hmm. seen a lot shift. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot change and I've been here a lot shorter period of time than you. (laughs) So I'm curious, what sticks out in your mind? If you think back to the different epochs, eras, some key inflection points, Mm -hmm. What what sticks out as some of the key events or shifts in the industry since you've been in it? Well, there's just uh, every if you look at every aspect of what property managers touch, there's been change and it's been significant change. Uh, there's um, an old saying that the only two things certain in life are death and taxes. Well, there's a third one. It's called change. And that is absolutely if you're not part of the change, you're getting left behind. And that, and really, I mean, from tenant screening to leases, I mean, mom and dad's first lease was typed on a IBM, a selectric typewriter, and it was one page on one side. Simple, you know? easy. Oh man. And you know, so much of it was handshake agreements. And, um, I mean, some, many of the houses were old World War II era homes and they didn't have built in appliances. Tenants had to have their own dish, uh, had to have their own refrigerator and their own range. That was normal back then. Uh, when I first started working with my parents in 82 in property management, they, uh, the, the average house didn't even have a refrigerator. I say maybe 20% of our inventory had a refrigerator. So everything about the industry has changed, uh, the technology. Um, when I first started working with my parents, the accounting system was the McB one right system, which was this ledger card system with a master, um, uh, 
page that you inserted in and you wrote receipts or wrote checks and it recorded everything uh, so that you could keep up with stuff. But, but it's was, interesting they were using technology yes, in that regard. But that was, but that was the that, that was cutting edge. It was absolutely cutting edge. And so we bought our first computer in 1983. And uh, that was also the year that the Reagan Tax Reform Act had really started taking flight. And they were building duples, tries, and quads all over the place in our area to sell to individuals to help take advantage of tax shelters. Because you could get double declining balance on depreciation as well as cost of components. So instead of 29 and a half years straight line depreciation, you could get it done in about seven and a half years. Mm. Major. And people were paying huge taxes back then, even with some of the other changes that had happened. Sold a Lockheed engineer, a duplex in 1981, in December of 81, and closed it. It was, he got an FHA investor mortgage with 15% down at 17.5% interest. But it made sense because of the depreciation, his tax basis, and him saying, if I'm going to spend this money, I'm either writing a check to the IRS or I'm writing a check to myself, and at least I'm building something and owning this piece of real estate. So it, a, lot of, a lot of crazy decisions get made because of circumstances and the government and regulations and everything else, just like we've experienced with owners not being willing to do much with the uh, eviction moratorium mm-hmm. and wanted to just cash out. Mm-hmm. So. There's so many inflection points. One of the ones that sticks out is you mentioning the 17% interest rates. This was mm-hmm. when inflation was spiking. Yeah. And one of the notorious, the infamous characters was Paul Volcker at the Fed, mm-hmm. who had the will to actually ratchet things up. Yeah. Who can ima- imagine in the current political climate, the Fed having the will to go that high. Yeah. It worked. It yes. was it fixed the problem, mm-hmm. but that's an incredible amount of political will and political mm-hmm. capital expended in yep. order to get that done. How do you see inflation impacting our industry right now? Oh, it's huge. Um just a great example. Uh it's costing me almost double what it did 2 years ago to get a ha- interior of a home painted on a turn right now. That's ginormous. I mean, you, you, you can't wrap, almost wrap your head around that. What was a $1,700 paint job now is a $3,400 paint job. And wow. That's a wild. lot of that has to do with labor. A lot of that has to do with the cost of supplies, but it's also just what the market has starting to bear. You go out there and try and find licensed and insured vendors that can do this kind of work. You're, you're, you're going to be paying prices. And so that's, that's the hard part for us now is continuing to ferret out the best price with the, the co- best combination of price, service, quality of work and timeliness to get it done. And the interesting thing about inflation is that a big part of it is a story. It's a game mm-hmm. of telephone. You hear mm-hmm. about it. I react. You react to my reaction. It's kind of this loop you get caught in. Mm-hmm. How does the owner relate to these? bids going up and you're kind of caught in the middle. Right. So yeah, uh, I'm calling it sticker shock uh, is definitely that. So we're preparing it. We've already been communicating with our property owners on a regular basis over the last couple of years with events about what was going on with COVID and the restrictions and all the things we were dealing with and how we were addressing it with residents and such. Uh, But we've expanded that now to come back and say, all of those are gone, but we've got a new set of problems. And the new set of problems is, is just getting the work done and how much things are costing and the ability to get an appliance and working with tenants to help them understand we can't get a dishwasher for six weeks because they just don't exist. They're on a, they're in a container out in the Pacific. And thankfully the, um, the press has done a great job of helping us educate folks about the supply chain issues. 
Um, and also in many times, many cases, they've discovered that in their own personal home when they're wanting to, to do some work on their own personal home where they need to replace an appliance. They're witnessing the same thing. But it's really all about communication and information and giving them the facts and not embellishing it and not, um, woe is me and wringing our hands. We're just going to, it's just another problem to be solved. And I think, Jordan, one of the best definitions of a property manager is problem solver. Because if there were no problems to be solved, I wouldn't have a job. There would be no, no problems. You know, everybody would honor the leases that were signed. Everybody would pay always on the first. There'd never be late rent. There'd never be bounce checks. There'd, what would I do most of the month? <laughs> yeah, exactly. When you look at some of these software programs that get offered to DIY landlords at face value, if you've never mm -hmm. been in the industry, it seems to make sense. Well, you know, you could use this software to collect the rent and mm -hmm. to handle an invoice. You know, what, what more do you need? It's not until you're actually in it that you realize all of the complexity and how property right. managers actually earn a buck right on this subject of technology what's the wave that you've seen uh take hold of the industry from let's say i don't know you tell me when did technology start having a meaningful impact on your business and kind of this current iteration of cloud-based solutions etc what did that transition look like sure it started basically in the mid 90s with the uh, de uh, development of the PC and it getting out into the small business world because most of us in the do um, SFR are all in are all small businesses so we didn't buy mainframes or rent mainframes or do that sort of thing and even then the the software product was basically an accounting package with a small database management and so we started to see them evolve uh, through the 90s and into the 2000s. And after the dot-com bust, we finally started to see the cloud evolve in the earliest part of this um, of the first decade of this century. And that has just continued. And a lot of that was promoted by the speed of the internet. Um, when I first started, when we had our first website and started doing things on the internet and posting listings on the internet, it was all dial-up. Mm -hmm. Or it was DSL at best. And so broadband just didn't exist. And as things continue to improve, you saw that the speed of the computing, the speed of the, the connections. Um, and then another revolution, of course, was the infamous smartphone, iPhone. absolutely smartphone, iPhone, Android, whatever it might be. Uh, there's more compute, computing power in that phone than in every single PC I bought from the 90s until now. Mm -hmm. It's amazing what's in this and the capability for me to learn and do anything from anywhere. I can now run my business sitting right here in this chair and I'm what, 900 miles from, from my business. That's a beautiful And people thing. don't even know that. So. Yeah, it's I've, I've done several things already today. Nobody had any idea I was here except for my out of office message on my email. Let's talk a little bit more about your business. Give me some background, some contacts. How many sure. staff members do you have? Right now we have a total of eight. Uh, two are remote uh, team members and uh, six are boots on the ground. And is it exclusively single family properties? It's single family properties for lease as well as single family homeowners associations. What's the mix? Sure. Uh, we have approximately 150 single family homes that we lease and 43 associations with 2,900 doors. 
Hmm, interesting. And yeah. SFH came first and then yes. HOA? Mm-hmm. SFH has existed ever since the 60s uh, that my fa- my dad did. And I saw the opportunity in the mid-90s that this was a potential for us. Because one of the things that was happening in the mid-90s is in our area, all the municipalities and the counties were requiring mandatory homeowners associations within the zoning of, for the developments. There was no choice. Um, and you make something mandatory, the only way you can undo it if you've got 100 home communities, you get all 100 homes Unanimous. to agree. What are to, the odds of that? Yeah. Well, they can't even agree that the sun sets in the east and, I mean, sets in the west and rises in the east. They can't even agree on that. So how are you ever going to get them to disband an HOA? It's not going to happen. And they're, they, they, they don't have the sophistication and understanding of volunteer leadership and how to manage these things. So there has to be a, a place for a proper manager in there. And that's made a huge difference. It's fascinating to me how little cross-pollination there is between SFR and HOA. Mm-hmm. You've been a fixture here with NARPM. Have you also been heavily involved in the HOA, CAI, that world? Not heavily involved in CAI, frankly. Most of it has just been me figuring out where the sweet spot was for me, finding where the niche was. And for me, it was the 20 to 100 home detached single families. Uh, they may or may not have a pool. Their annual collections Vast majority of the work is back office work, um, and and the, really the secret sauce is just like it is with SFR, answer the phone, respond to emails. Because in the large management company world, those properties are throwaways. They don't pay attention to them. They don't get, they're not respected and they don't get the attention because frankly, they're used as filler for uh, a portfolio of a, of a community manager. And so he may have, he or she may have um, three or four communities that are well over 500 homes each. In fact, maybe one even be over a thousand. And then they might have two or three that are smaller than that with one being around 80 or 90 homes. So if that thousand home president calls the manager at the exact same time, the 90 home manager calls, what's human nature tell you? Mm, you're going to give priority <laughs> to the bigger dog. Exactly. Exactly. And these people realize it because the number one complaint they have when they're coming to look for uh, management, changing management or leaving from self-management is communication and understanding and being able to, to, uh, to get the work done. What about the profitability of these two disparate business units? It, it is different because uh, the pricing model is different. But the, the thing that's really different with them is that the you, you've already built this infrastructure of staffing for your SFR. And hardly ever are you in complete capacity with that. So this being somewhat back office fills into there. Um, I've looked at my association management business as being a profit center that pays for pretty much all of my office operations, my rent, my, uh, the high speed fiber, fiber, you know, uh, internet that we have to have for the facility and pays for all of that. And all the other, they're the copies and things, all the, the, the pieces and parts that make the company work. All of that's covered plus profit for uh, by the HOA enterprise. Let's talk some basic blocking and tackling of property management. Sure. Have you taught any uh, classes over the years? Yes. What classes, I'm really, this is a leading question because I know the answer. <laughs> what classes have you taught over the years, Michael? Well, uh, from NARPM, I've taught every single one of the designation classes except for uh, the maintenance company one. And that's because I don't have a maintenance company that I own. I don't feel comfortable uh, 
doing that one, but I've done all of the others. I've helped rewrite all of those starting in 2015 and adding to them, uh, putting an appendix in them for the first time with additional documentation, uh, additional research, forms, systems, working with several vendors to get them to contribute some of their product in the there as long as we gave them recognition that it was their product. And it's been a great thing to really help improve the education and the product that we were offering through NARPM. Are you suffering from data loss? Wondering if all of those years of data that you've locked away in your property management software will ever be yours? Do you really own it? Can you transport it and take it somewhere else? Great question. My name's Jordan Wayla, and I'm here to talk to you about a paradigm where you actually own your data. Novel concept, huh? Not really. But for some reason in this industry, there's a paradigm where you don't actually own your own data. And I'm here to tell you, it ain't right. It's got to stop. And we're going to do something about it. Here at Lead Simple, we fundamentally believe that your data is yours. It should be portable. You should be able to push, pull, mutate, do whatever you need to it and make it serve you because you own it and it is yours. So if you believe in a future with an open paradigm, a future where you're able to push, pull and do whatever you need in real time when you need it, then join me and pushing back, having the conversation and planting a flag in the ground and saying, it's mine. I deserve it. Don't act like you're going to give me permission to get it when you see fit under such and such a billing arrangement. It was always yours. It will be yours. And you're going to get it back. And we're going to help. What class have you taught the greatest number of times? Um, one of them is personal procedures essentials. I've taught that one probably four times in the last two years. Um, the office operations, uh, profitability and uh, client relations, uh, the risk management classes. I love the risk management classes and I really enjoy teaching those. You know, one of the things that's so notably different about property management is it's very uncommon to have a small business doing, let's say, a million dollars in top line revenue and to also have several hundred thousand dollars of cash just kind of sitting there. They're supposed mm -hmm. to hold on to mm -hmm. don't pay, you know, don't, don't touch it. Just right. keep it safe, keep safe, keep safe hands on it. It seems kind of fundamentally like a recipe for disaster yes. for most organizations. When you look at the controls that are put in place to be able to make sure that that money is in fact kept safe, mm -hmm. what's your short list of best practices for the owner to make sure that they're on top of things? Sure. Now, one of them is you separate AP and AR. Sure. Uh, you don't want the same people doing both jobs. Uh, you require two signatures on every check that goes out. You require two signatures or two codes nowadays on doing initiating ACHs and paying owners and paying vendors and that sort of thing so that you can make sure that things are taken care of. The reporting functions that are in all of the software packages now is, are incredible. And so it gives us the opportunity to really stay on top of things much easier than it ever was before. Uh, we also have banking controls in with the banks, and that will alert us with certain things. I had one where we got a check that got washed, um, uh, sent through the U.S. mail. And unfortunately, that's prompted us um, between that and a whole bunch of delivery issues. It's prompted us to do uh, go into greater detail in working with our vendors to allow us to do ACH payments directly to them mm. instead of mailing checks anymore. And it's just gotten to where it's not reliable. Uh, but in that particular instance, because with the banking uh, regulation, the banking procedures that we had in place with our institution, they there was no problem at all in covering that check. 
because of this criminal act. I want to ask you a question. Mm -hmm. When you think back on some of the lowest moments in a very long career, what sticks out as a really challenging circumstance that you had to figure out a way to work through? That's a great question because it's an unusual response for most management companies and managers. Uh, we had our office was attacked by um, arsonist through a firebomb through the back window of the office. Yes, a firebomb. Uh, Molotov cocktail. Uh, 15 minutes after the last person left on a Thursday afternoon. Wow. Yeah. Didn't see that coming. No, no, no. What now? Uh, how can you contextualize this? Was there a backstory? Was there an intent? Was there a motive? What did we, unfortunately, we were just the victim of circumstance at that point in time because this arsonist had already been at work in Marietta and he had attacked eight, ended up eventually attacking eight different law firms, two insurance companies and two real estate companies. So you, one of was ours. there a method to the madness in terms no. of who was being targeted? Or was it was just, no, for whatever reason, that was the institutions that he chose. Wow. I don't know whether he, they never, they found him. They could not get a, they could not get enough evidence to convict him. So basically they sat on him and ran him out of town. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because they just couldn't do it, but they almost got him to convicted because one of the things they discovered is that he was really a, a, a police and fire and security guard type nut. And so his apartment was full of memorabilia and paraphernalia from that. And they almost got him to confess to it when they offered to put him on the back of the hook and ladder dress him up and spin up the siren and lights and take him on a tour around town. Wow. <laughs> they almost got him. That is wild. <laughs> so in terms of the particulars, did the actual interior of the office? Was yes. It yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wiped out. Was, uh, not completely wiped out, but essentially was. Uh, by the time they demoed the building, all that was left was the four walls and the foundation. What year was this? So it was 1994. So this is in a year where this is pre uh, cloud computing mm -hmm. Take yep. my PC, mm -hmm. run it over with the truck. I'm fine. I'll go mm -hmm. buy another and re-download it. Mm -hmm. That must have been a real setback. It was. It was and it wasn't because we were very blessed. Our, that first computer I told you we bought in 83, one of the things that they beat into us was daily backups. Oh. And to have a two-week uh, routine of daily backups where you did a backup every day at 5 o'clock, shut down five o'clock, you do a backup, don't do any business, take them, put, it, put the backups in a briefcase, take them off site. That was our saving grace. That is wild. So, so on Monday, on Tuesday morning, when we got the replacement computer and uh, we had the phone system, we had this temporary office set up and everything. Well, all we did was plug that back up in, do a restore, and it was the next business day. That is absolutely wild. And we, we also had a, a procedure where we just didn't leave files laying out on desk. And, but in this particular instance, there were two files that were lost. But otherwise, we didn't have to recreate any files. It was just get the smoke odor out of them. And that smoke odor, I can still smell it and taste it in the back of my throat today. Oh, my. every time I think about it. But um, we, uh, it was a uh, insurance uh, term. It was uh, the the limits policy uh, policy limits claim. So it ended up wiping out everything. And even though we had been a client with this particular insurance company ever since my grandfather started the business in the mid fifties, they canceled us. 
even before the fire department determined that we weren't involved. I mean, they interviewed my ex-wife. They interviewed all of us. They talked to our contractors. They looked at previous tenants, applicants, owners. They looked at everybody, but they finally found this person and tracked him down. Turns out that one of the way they found him was he pretended to be our security guard and got to walk through the building while they were while the firemen were there and cleaning up. So he got to see his handiwork. Wow. It's real sick. sick, real sick stuff. But the the um, challenge to overcome that and not lose your business was amazing. And so it was really, really a lot of diligent, hard work. Um, but by me and my parents and the other staff members at the time to save the business, owners uh, were working with us. Tenants, not a problem. Uh, we Everything just worked great because we were just on top of it and didn't let it own us. A ton of resilience there. Mm -hmm. Let's keep on this theme. Sure. Walk me through a great court battle. Walk me through a, uh, a tenant situation, an owner situation where you had to, you had to duke it out and you, you came out on the right side of it. Well, you know, the, uh, the property management world is littered with um, uh, evictions. And that's almost always the case. We had uh, very seldom, I can only think of three times that we had an owner sue us um, in the, in all the years we've been around and going back to my grandfather's company uh, in 82 through McCrary, which started in 1990. So we've been McCrary for 32 years now and eight years as that. So we're at 40 years. Uh, doing all this. And if we only had three owners sue us during that period of time. So I think we're doing something right there. That is impressive. What about yeah. on the tenant side though? Tenant side, we've, uh, the, the, it's probably happens about once every five years, we get sued over a security deposit claim and small claims court. And we've won every single one of those because of the documentation that we do. Uh, the only thing I, I haven't been able to perfect is being able to bag up a, a, enough of the carpet so that the owner can, uh, so that the judge can smell what it smelled like when the tenant moved out. So I don't have smell of vision yet, but, but, uh, but that's really the key is uh, documentation left and right following the law. Georgia law is very, very codified specific on how we return deposits. We've got the, that we've got three business days to do the inspection and a total of five business days from the day they turn in the keys to tender to the tenant what we think we're going to be deducting from. So hardly ever do we get real numbers. We have to estimate mm -hmm. and then, but we have 30 days total to complete the accounting. So we then have to come back afterwards once we have the real numbers and adjust the deposit transmittal at that point in time. What's the worst circumstance you've ever seen during a move out? Um, I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot. Some of the saddest ones are where children are involved. Mm. We had an eviction we had to do where the uh, tenant made no effort whatsoever moving out. It's just like when Locked. we got there, yeah, when we got there at three in the uh, one in the afternoon to do the eviction, it was as if she just left that morning on a regular work day. No boxing, no nothing. Every, the curtains on the wall, everything on, uh, on the on the windows, art on the wall. You know, everything set up properly, nothing packed whatsoever. And we had a crew of six or seven there for this three bedroom house. And what was worse was at about two forty five, the school bus stops out front, and her children get off the bus as we're emptying their their bedrooms out onto the street, onto the curb. That was tough. Then we couldn't find her. This was in the days before cell phones were really popular. And she wasn't responding at work, clearly wasn't home. 
And so the uh, the sheriff, uh, deputy sheriff, had to contact Children's Services, and they had to deal with the children for us while we while they sat in the back of the sheriff's car watching us complete putting everything else out on the street. Wow, tough. Um, one of the first things I did when I uh, started working with my parents is I really, my, my heart was, you know, felt for that to the point of pain, mm. uh, those types of circumstances. And so I went to, um, a church the, that I went to Roswell street Baptist church and they had a, a business minister and I went and sat and talked with him and he really gave me some good feedback and understanding on my responsibility and what I need to do. And how, no matter how tough it is, um, you know, biblically where we were. Now, I know not everybody subscribes to any sort of Christian religion, um, and I'm fine with that. But there's tenets like that throughout all the famous religions in the world. Uh, karma, 70 times 7, you name it. There's something out there where people will, will get done unto them whatever they've done unto us usually worse. We may never know about it. I don't need to know about it. I rest well at night knowing that if they've done unto me and done unto my client, that they will unfortunately have to pay for it in some way, usually much larger than what they did to us. Sure. You're working on behalf of the owner. That's right. That ultimately Mm -hmm. is who the client is. uh, Yes, absolutely. That's where my fiduciary responsibility is. And what is the profile of your average owner? Is it an accidental? Is it an investor? We're about 50-50, where it's the owner that um, did not intend on uh, getting that property. Accidental investor, investor by circumstance, that sort of thing. Uh, the, uh, and I have fun with those. I really enjoy working with those folks because it appeals to me as an educator Mm. because I get to teach them how to be a good, a good, uh, investor owner, uh, of rental property and what it really means and what, and what to expect because, uh, it's not all, you know, really roses and sweethearts and candy out there. It's, it's tough business. And if you're not prepared for it, you can have some real problems. And the worst part about the accidental investor is particularly when it was the home that they lived in and mm. it was their principal residence. They have emotional attachment to it. And, you know, when you move out of a house, whether you've lived there for a year or five years or whatever, you never really realize how dirty you lived until you get all the furniture out of the house. Right. Mm. Okay. So these owners don't remember that. All they remember is how the house looked when they lived there. And three or four years down the road, they come to see the house after the first tenant moves out and oh my god they've destroyed our house oh look at this i can't believe they did that i painted that you know that kind of thing and so helping them understand how to disconnect the emotion from the from the project and making it the family business instead of the family home really is um is is satisfying but there are certain situations where that can just not happen and i've counseled several folks that no you need to sell you don't need just to get out just you know, too you much are, emotional duress you got too much emotion tied up into this property i think it would be a great investment property but you would pay for it dearly i think those that know you can sense the educator in you mm-hmm. how do you see that show up specifically in a sales conversation you're talking to a prospective owner mm-hmm. what is that education look like beyond just, Hey, here's what we do. Here's our services. Here's a fact sheet. Mm -hmm. How do you educate during the sales process? Sure. We talk about uh, return on investment. We talk about the reason why you own the piece of property. What are your goals and objectives? That's one of the first questions I want to ask is why do you own this? And what are, what are your expectations? What's your goals and objectives? Um, Many owners will tell us, well, I'm I'm owning the, I'm going to buying this. I'm going to keep it. And then when my child gets to college age, I'm going to sell it and I'll be able to pay for college admirable goal. 
And but that fee, it tells me what I need to know because if they if they had instead came to me and said, "I'm only going to own this for a couple of years," within the we're going to sell it to a developer and they're probably going to tear the house down. Completely different management philosophies from a maintenance standpoint as well as tenant selection standpoint because we've got to find somebody that's going only wants to be in the property for a year or two at the most, and we know that the property owner is not willing to put in a brand new heating and air system only to have the house torn down, mm-hmm. uh, that sort of thing. Whereas if it's the long-term hold, where it's uh, somebody who's going to want to have a completely different maintenance philosophy, as well as tenant selection philosophy. You want to find somebody that's going to be in there five to seven years that maximizes your investment in your turn in getting the property ready for a tenant to move in, but doesn't penalize you by letting them stay longer. Because most people think, oh, a 10 or 12-year tenant's fantastic. Look at that. Most people don't keep up with the rent mm-hmm. increases. Mm-hmm. And under most in most states, your sole compensation for normal wear and tear is the collection of the monthly rent. Mm-hmm. So if you're $100 or $200 or $300 a month light on the rent, look at what you're leaving behind. That $3,600 you could have collected this year, that would have paid for your new flooring. Mm-hmm. But you didn't. So now you got to come out of pocket with it. And so helping owners understand this part of it, helping them become better business people at operating this is what's so enjoyable with it for me. Talk to me about scope of services. You're mm-hmm. talking about, tell me your goals. And depending mm-hmm. on that, we can contextualize what to do. Right. The reality is, as a PM, you could offer many different services, do things many different ways for many different people. Mm-hmm. What are the lines in the sand that you draw? What are the edges of the box where you say, this is what you're getting. Mm-hmm. This is how we do things. Right. We're not going to color outside of these lines. What are right. those lines for you? Typically, it's from the accounting side. Rent's due on the first. Late at night, I'm on the sixth. We pay owners between the 10th and 12th of the month. And that sort of thing. Uh, if they want to do things differently out of that, we can't accommodate it because there's certain economies of scale you have to have in place. Otherwise, you'll just drive yourself nuts. It's hard enough with the different maintenance scopes, but that can be codified into your um, property management software. And we use Property Meld, which is a fantastic p- uh, piece. And it's got the ability to put in there uh, stops on certain things or pop ups, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like um, uh, for the HVAC, this particular system was replaced three years ago and it came with a 10 year warranty. So call this contractor, this contractor only on this property. So we're able to adjust and, and, and compensate in those kinds of ways. Other hard stops are locations. Uh, other hard stops are fair housing oriented where we don't let owners have anything to do with the tenant selection process. Uh, it's a recipe for ending up losing your business and them losing their house and just a, a big mess, if not at jail time. So. so how do you qualify and educate on the front side to where there's no surprises to where when you're going to be, when you're going to take a hard line about that, mm-hmm. you don't have any sympathy about them pushing back. Cause right. it's more like we told you so not yes. surprise. Mm-hmm. What does that qualification conversation look like on the front side without scaring people off? Sure. Sure. And you do it in the form for me, for us, it's the form of FAQs that basically walks them through the first contact with us through the first tenant moving out and covers everything in between as a high overview thumbnail sketch that introduces all of these topics. So it produces additional questions. That's one of the things that um, you, you want them to do. You want them to ask questions and you don't want them to ask simple yes, no questions. You want them to have open 
ended questions so that you can expand on it and help them understand your philosophy because that's what you want them to do. You want them to adopt your philosophy in basic property management because if you have three different philosophies, four different philosophies, you better well have completely different systems and people in place for each one of those philosophies. Well said. Scope of services is one of those issues that's just not obvious on the front side. Mm -hmm. A common story early on, you get in the business, you're taking any kind of property. If it has four walls, walls, you're willing to manage it. Mm -hmm. When you think about how your business has changed on the monetization piece specifically, we're at a point in the industry where there's been so much conversation about fee maxing and revenue. What is that journey and evolution looked like for for you what's worked what hasn't what's made sense what hasn't right right well for me the biggest thing has been um looking outside from where we were um being willing to again adopt change uh because forever our sole compensation was a monthly management fee and a leasing services fee that was it uh, didn't make any money Simple. on anything else. Uh, you might have made a little money on the application fee, but really otherwise, those were your two forms, three forms of income. We started adding fees such as a lease renewal fee. One of my favorites is a maintenance coordination fee. Uh, that maintenance coordination fee has paid the salary plus profit of, my, of any maintenance coordinator I've, I've had in the last 15 plus years. Tell me about that fee. How, when does that get involved? Sure. In our instance, there is a fee where if the, uh, on maintenance, that's anything more than a thousand dollars, we're going to charge a percentage of what is spent beyond that thousand dollars. So if it's a new HVA system, that's $5,000, we earn a maintenance coordination fee on the 4,000. Hmm. And that way the resident, the owners understand that they're going to get covered the first thousand dollars worth of maintenance without us having to charge any additional fee. How, what's the reserve that you require your clients to keep on hand? We don't keep, uh, we don't require that um, because with all of our vendors, we've got 30 day billing. So that's going to allow us to pay it out as the next month's rent. And if it's a major project like that, we require them to go ahead and get the money to us. What about the solvency of your owners? Do you draw a hard line around class A, class B, class C properties? Yes, we don't. We have very, very few class C properties. Pretty much everything's A and B. I like to manage middle class America is where I'm at. So prior to determining it was prior to what's happened with rent in the last couple of, uh, in the last six months, uh, we were, our sweet spot was around 1200 a month to 2000 a month. And I'm in my market, um, that worked really, really well. Anything more than that, uh, it's more of a, was a more of a luxury market and there's different expectations from tenants and owners about that and different understandings from owners about maintenance costs. If you got a 5,000 square foot, five bedroom, four and a half bath home, uh, you're not going to paint that for two or three grand. You know, it's just not going to happen. And the expectation of that is, is, is overcoming that was difficult. And in the affordable range below 1200, uh, it's just incredibly maintenance to, uh, management intensive and maintenance intensive because they're usually older properties, older components, and things just cost more to fix and tenants don't last, tend, tend to last as long. So the middle class America tenant is usually around three years worth of tenancy. And, um, the, the product is, is more easily managed and more easily maintained. What does preventative maintenance mean to you, Dunwell? Preventative maintenance means to me that we've gone in and fixed something before it became urgent and, um, and, and maintain things in such a way to prevent them from falling apart due to negligence or due to lack of competent, uh, lack of caring for it. Um, things wear out no matter what. 
uh, houses have finite, the, all the pieces and parts of a house have a finite life. In fact, if you ever look at a, uh, your, your appraisal of your property, when you buy a house, it will have in there that the remaining economic life of the property is usually around 30 to 35 years. That's what we look at. Um, things just, uh, the whole house, if it's lasted more than 35 years, it's only because of maintenance. It's only been because we've been caring for it and keeping it up. But if you think about it, look at all that has to be changed and swapped out during that period of time. Every operating system has to be touched. Roofs have to be touched, windows, doors, kitchen cabinets, bathrooms, lots of different things. So basically at that point in time is the foundation and the framing of the house. That is what's the longevity. Everything else in between needs to be touched and maintained. Uh, one of the best things we've ever done is partner with on-site pros to do our great company. Yeah. Great company. They do what we call our proper annual property reviews. We don't want like to use the I word, the inspection word, because people unfortunately associate that with a home inspection, which is four or $500 or more and takes four hours and is really thorough, detailed. incredibly detailed. Whereas these guys are incredible documenters of the condition of the property. And so all that's what we're looking for. And then they'll be able to tell us things that they think are going to be a concern. Uh, we're going to have, uh, for example, a, um, a rotten window or a windowsill that's the paint is peeling on. If I can get that taken care of for a hundred bucks, that's better than waiting another year or two and then having to spend three or four hundred dollars to replace the whole window or replace the rotten windowsill. Talk to me about self-inspections. This has become more popular during mm -hmm. COVID. It's interesting, at least on the level of something supplemental. But the idea of I, as the tenant, am going to document my lease violations seems delusional. What value, if any, is there in self-inspections? Any documentation you get on the property while the tenant's there has some value. Uh, but you're right. It's not going to be probative as far as you know uh, the, the, the ones we get because it's amazing with the on-site pros reports. All of our properties are no smoking properties, but there'll be an ashtray on the coffee table. Um, if they, if they're not allowed pets and we see the pet uh, kennel and we see the dog, bowls, <laughs> we see things like that because what's neat is, is that if they know I'm coming, they're going to clean up and the house is going to smell like Clorox. <laughs> Everything's going to be put away, hidden the dog someplace else, <laughs> all that other stuff. Um, but when it's those guys, it's just another contractor coming to the property and they've, they, they, they're much more comfortable with that. And, it, we, we find more lease violations than we ever did when we did them ourselves. So the self, the self one was an interim gap. That was a COVID quality type product. Long term. Yeah. Long term. The only way I see that works would be to utilize a product like that for um, redocumenting the move in inspection. So when the tenant moves in, we present them with a move in inspection that we've completed and they have an opportunity to contribute to that as a part of the move in process. Both sides get an equal say and they can then use that uh, self-inspection product to document the move in that they, uh, when they saw it. So if there's something that uh, they feel like was a concern that sure. we didn't, sure. they have an opportunity to document it. 
Speaking of lease violations, talk to me about how your lease and your management agreement have evolved and changed over time. How often do you go back to revisit, make changes and modifications? Sure. Uh, well, well, um, code changes um, or uh, Georgia law changes obviously trigger those things, those events. And so that could be um, for a five-year period, that was almost annually, but either the management agreement or the lease had to be updated because of changes in code. And a couple of times it was within a rather than a whole rewrite. Um, but as things change, as things evolved, as liabilities become aware, we become more aware of liabilities and responsibilities that we see in the industry, even if they haven't happened to us, we know they've happened to others. We want to try and plug those holes as much as we possibly can. So my original management contract like was like my dad had was just a one page. It happened to be a legal page <laughs> instead of a letter size, but it was very, very simple. Very, very, I think the best way to describe both of those documents the original lease and the original management agreement is they were formalized handshake agreements is what they were, you know, very, Not a lot of very contingencies loose. anticipated. No, very, very, very loose. So with that, um, over time we've, we've evolved, we've uh, taken, uh, like all good property management companies, we don't reinvent the wheel. So if we see something we like uh, that somebody else is doing, we might adopt that and, and work with our attorney to make it work within our frame of what we want to do. So my management agreement has now evolved into seven pay eight pages and my lease is involved into, uh, I think nine. So it, we're, 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 we're plugging all the holes. We're, we're, we're right. We don't have to use the duct tape to seal up the holes in the floor anymore for the cracks on the floor for things to fall through. And that's made a big difference. And because the beauty behind it is you can come back and say, I don't think I told you, I know I told you, and here it is. So that makes a big difference in helping things, working with folks with lease violations. Um, one of the greatest things is with technology, with machine learning and AI that's all coming. And I'm so excited about that. I think that's great opportunities for us uh, in, as the industry continues to evolve. But right now with the applications, we have we use pet screening. Again, another great NARPA. Absolutely. Shout out to John Bradford. Absolutely. I mean, what a brilliant, brilliant move on his part. Nobody and saw that coming. No, and the, but the it was right place, right time. I mean, the 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 the, the prototypical uh, entrepreneurial uh, study that will be probably studied in business schools for quite a while. Uh, it's really great tool, but it's fantastic in the fact that we have a hard stop in our application that requires a specific style number that comes back from pet screening that they either have signed the agreement that we will not have pets and we will not allow temporary pets or mm. visiting pets or anything like that without landlord permission. Uh, or they do have a pet and they go through the pet screening process and they come back and they put that number in, then they can complete the application. It has really done a great job of solving the ESA problem with us, emotional support animals. Uh, it's really minimized that because people have to meet the standards that the that our uh, federal law requires. Because the great thing about fair housing in Georgia is it said the, the Georgia law says see federal law. So it's very simple. We don't have uh, uh, any lay, any uh, overlay. And so uh, we're able to then come back in and work with the, the federal requirements. And as long as they meet the federal requirements, we're okay with the ESA. But if they don't, we're, they're, they're a pet at that point in time. And we have seen multiple applications stall at that point and not proceed on because they either can't get the ESA 
certification that they want or they don't want to go through that process. And that saved us, I think, a lot. And in a tougher market, a seller's more, uh, uh, a land, a, uh, tenants market versus the landlord's market that we're in, that might be a problem where we're walking some potential folks, but that's not a problem right now because for the last three years, my marketing time is measured in hours, Mm. not days and weeks. What an interesting aspect of the industry for more or less the entire time that I've been in the industry, tenant placement has not been a priority. Mm -hmm. I remember an era, I would say just before I came into the industry where that felt like there was more emphasis and there was more of a burden. And I'm not saying that there's no emphasis, but in terms of demand and the Mm -hmm. volume of applications, talking to some management companies, you would almost get the impression that just the volume of tenant applications is kind of a pretty big organizational burden. It is. It's huge. It's huge. Um, We had one applicant, one property that was on the market. And even though we kept telling folks, we do first come first serve. And even though we were telling folks, we already have an application and we have this many backup applications already in line in the queue. Um, And so the the person that we're processing they either we either accept them and they accept us or we move on to the next application and we got to the point where there was 22 backup applications at one point and are they all paying for yeah they put they they put the money up first but i don't charge them the application fee unless i process the application Mm. so they get their money back so uh, it's a good thing 22 people applying 22 people were so desperate for that house that they were willing to be 22nd in line (laughs) hoping that all the 21 ahead of them would fail in some way (laughs) And or not take the house when that sort of thing, <laughs> when that sort of thing happens, does it ever make you question the, the rent rate? Oh, absolutely. You know, these days trying to figure out how high up is to raise rents is, is, is crazy. I've never in the 43 years I've been in real estate, I've never seen a market like this anywhere in the country. Well, how far there, there obviously is a limit. Mm-hmm. How does this play out? I feel for people in relation to affordable housing. This right. is a really unfortunate circumstance that fundamentally does not seem sustainable. How far can this go? There will be a plateau and it's going to be uh, when, when finally it gets to the point of um, salaries, when you know, people's income versus what the, what the property is. Plus, I mean, we as strategic, we're rejecting people sometimes simply because they don't make enough money. You know, we have a requirement of three times the rent amount as the minimum gross income per month. First applicant, mm-hmm. common practice, liability reduction. Mm-hmm. If the liability wasn't there, certainly I don't think anybody could argue that it would be optimal. How do you how do you balance that? Particularly given that you're in Georgia, you're you have more, a little more leeway than let's say somewhere mm-hmm. in California or the Northeast, etc. Uh, do you have any peers in your market that don't practice the first applicant? Yes. Yes. There's a lot of folks that are, um, really, uh, it's almost the, the ones that are, have brokerage, uh, sales brokerages, because they think that the sales situation where you have to present all offers to a tenant, uh, to a prospective owner is different than in a lease situation where they're putting in an application and it's identical to everybody else's. Because the criteria is even. The criteria is absolutely even. Nobody, and we, so that's the reason we don't entertain doing something different. Because where fair housing can really rear its ugly head is in that environment where you're going to be comparing applicant A through G against one another head to head. 
mm-hmm. um, taking personal prejudices mm-hmm. and 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 personal experiences out of that and staying strictly with your with your model of um, of rating folks gender neutral race neutral mm-hmm. everything fair housing neutral then you you you're, you're those are the ones that almost always get in trouble with uh, with HUD and fair housing and obviously you could augment you could get at the same thing by raising the standard for the criteria mm-hmm. which would effectively have the equivalence of picking the best person you could just globally raise the bar another out here is to use a third party screening company to mm-hmm. protect yourself a bit what do you what have you seen what do you do in terms of screening have you used third party screening companies yes i've always used third party screening company because i don't want to belong to the uh credit reporting agencies so we always use them to ge- to generate the information they will many times they will take the information we that, that we've put in for our rating profile um and they will make a recommendation based upon our standards as to whether it's an approval, a conditional approval, or a rejection. But we always still come back and hand analyze every single one of them. Oversight. Mm-hmm. To, to make absolutely certain that we're making the, the best choice. I will tell you that in the last 12, 13, 14 months, we've been averaging about four applications before we get the, the right, before we get one that truly qualifies. Talk to me about owner communication, cadence, mm-hmm. format, frequency. What are sure. the best practices there? Well, I think you can over-communicate. Um, so you don't want to do too much because one of the things you want them to do is trust you that you're doing the right thing mm-hmm. and you're taking care of it every day. One of the things that they're also asking of you is take me out of this. Make the decision. I don't want to be there. I don't want to be, I don't want to be there in the middle of this. And some owners are, are, are really hyper vigilant about maintenance costs. So if it's going to be more than X amount of dollars, I got to know. And don't you proceed without it unless it's a dire emergency. Um, we try to minimize that as much by again, continuing to improve. But then a lot of times we're able to change things after the first year or two, uh, with a client that just where they can see they can trust us that we're not willy nilly spending their money. It totally makes sense. It obviously is a fine line between wanting to service Mm -hmm. versus demonstrating your real expertise and your acumen. People fall over the map here. And I think it's interesting when you hear management company owners talk about the pricing conversation in the Mm -hmm. sales uh, format. And sometimes what I, what perks up my ears is hearing folks say, well, they just want to ask about price and price and Mm -hmm. price. And the reality is if you don't provide people alternative criteria, Mm-hmm. Price is the only thing left to talk about. Right. How do you handle conversations about price? Sure. Um, well, the first thing I do, I, I usually respond with a question. Uh, and it's almost, what are your goals and objectives in owning this piece of property? And I get them to try and talk to me about the way they own the property and what they're looking to obtain and get out of it. Because I'll find out real fast whether or not price is the only thing that they're worried about because if price is the only thing they're worried about they're going to be pri- they're going to be killing me over the fact that I sp- I spent $90 on a plumbing bill okay <laughs> and that's just the, the, that's just a non-starter and so we we are very very careful about that we want clients that come in that are uh, financially solvent enough that it's not going to be a big deal if they've got to take care of some maintenance if there was one piece of advice that you could give to the broad cross section mm-hmm. of NARPM newbies, folks that are new coming into, into the industry, what would it be? Oh my goodness. The one thing is, is that you, uh, you just cannot stop learning. 
Um, you, you don't know what you don't know. And you, and, and unfortunately it's one of those things like, uh, how do coming out of college, I can't get a job without experience and I can't get experience without a job. And it's very much the same way with property management. And as you're building up your portfolio and such, I would also say, pick a lane, make sure that you build your niche, build where you want to be, um, limit your geography, your geography. Don't, uh, try and be everything to everybody. Mm. Um, also limit the portfolio you're willing to work on. Uh, that's why I don't do commercial. That's why I don't do mobile home. I don't do a ton of other things that uh, produce an income stream. Just limit myself to SFR. I'm not interested in multifamily. I've done multifamily. I've done uh, the in the 80s and 90s. I was the duplex, triplex, quadplex king of that area. I built that inventory up to over 400, almost 500 uh, units. But I was killing myself because that's what it took to make any money because of the rent mm. and what the fees were at the time and what the minimums were at a time. So... We reconfigured our inventory twice, once in the late 90s and then again uh, a few years later uh, and have blend and gone almost exclusively single family. I think I have three duplexes left that we manage. Final question. If there was one NARPM class, because you've taught them all, if there was one NARPM class that you would recommend to a beginner, which one would it be and why? It's a great question. Um First off, I don't think they're wrong with taking several of them uh, and just choosing it down to one. I would say it's the risk management essentials. And that's simply because risk management is the key to having a successful, long lasting business. It keeps me out of court, keeps me making money keeps my clients happy. I've managed thousands of houses for thousands of clients with even more thousands of tenants. And to be able to still be here today, successfully doing it, I think says an awful lot about that philosophy of really understanding risk. Well, thank you for your contribution to making that a great class and for educating the industry. Appreciate you coming on the show today. Absolutely. Thank you, Jordan. It's been a pleasure. Until next time. Absolutely. Hey guys, quick message on the lead simple front. We are hiring aggressively into a bunch of different roles right now. Head of customer success, finance and accounting manager, customer implementation pilots, customer success associates, software engineers, all over the place. So my question to you is, do you know somebody? Do you know somebody that might be interested or a fit for one of these roles? You can see the full scope at lead simple dot com forward slash careers head of customer success finance and accounting manager uh, are the ones that we are focused on the most right now but i'd love to have a conversation about any of these roles so if you have questions you can email me at jordan at leadsimple.com to understand the scope the depth and to know if anybody in your network might be a fit we are a live crew, highly competitive, a little bit nerdy, and we love to have a really good time along the way as we work. So if this sounds like a fit for somebody that you know, love to hear from them. Thanks, guys. Jordan here asking you, what do you got? What is a question you want to ask me? Can you stump me? Can you throw me something hard, perplexing, vexing, something you feel tied up in knots with? Throw it at me. 
I'll do my best to try and answer that question, to dissect it, to parse out the nuance and maybe help you get a bit more clarity. I'm looking for questions as the basis for creating content and you're looking for answers as the basis for clarity and wouldn't it be perfect if those two things matched up? Drop a comment, send me, send me an email, jordan at leadsimple.com. Let's stay in the conversation. Peace.